it would be hard to find a more beautiful account of the birth of Christ than what Luke records for us in Luke chapter 2. And we often hear it read this time of year. And it's one of those passages of Scripture that's so beautiful, you almost feel as a preacher or a teacher of the Word that you're, you're rushing in where angels fear to tread to even add one word. You almost want to just read it and, and let it be. But I'm not going to do that this morning. <laughs> I am going to read it, but my goal is that on this Christmas morning that this passage, familiar to nearly all of us, would be the means the Spirit of God would use to cause us to meditate on how significant Christ's birth really is and, and its implications for us as those who follow Him. So will you follow with me as I read in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, these familiar words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Four things. We want to notice from this passage this morning, first in verses 1 through 5, the historic timing of His birth. We're considering the birth of the Savior King, the historic timing of His birth. In verses 6 and 7, the humble circumstances of His birth. In verses 8 through 14, the angelic announcement of His birth. And then verses 15 to 20, the human testimony to His birth. 
First, let's look again at the historic timing of his birth. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Why all the detail? Because this is actual history. This is real time. This is not fantasy. This is not just something, some story that somebody made up for entertainment. This is actual history. Caesar Augustus was originally named Gaius Octavius. He was adopted by Julius Caesar. You remember that Julius Caesar was assassinated, and what followed was a civil war. Well, Octavius was one who won that civil war. In 31 B.C., his reign began, and in 27 B.C., just four years later, a grateful senate conferred on him the title Augustus, hence Augustus Caesar. He ruled until his death in A.D. 14, and his reign ushered in 200 years of peace called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was in those days that Caesar Augustus put forth the decree that all the world should be registered. In those days, all the world meant all the Roman Empire, because it was nearly inconceivable that anything beyond the territories of Rome ruled even existed. In fact, Rome's rulers were considered the lords of the earth. Eventually, they would call themselves Savior and Lord, leading to the cult of emperor worship. And for all this vaunted pride and power, the mightiest human being on earth, Caesar Augustus, ruling over the most extensive empire on earth, was subject to a far greater king, the God of the universe. For just as Proverbs tells us, the king's heart is in a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Caesar's decree however conceived for advancing order in the empire, had a divine purpose way beyond just registering people for the poll tax, that is, the per-head tax on those that were citizens. The God of history was making sure that the Messiah would be born in the town that the prophet Micah had foretold centuries before would be the Messiah's birthplace. Micah says, but you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, this is a small town, so it doesn't have representative leadership among the leadership of the nation. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. God moved Caesar to make a decree to make sure that the Christ child was born where the prophets said he would be born. And so Joseph traveled from Galilee to Bethlehem. Look that up, 93.6 miles. If you're going interstate, it takes about two and a half hours. But, I don't know, they wouldn't call it interstate in Israel, would they? If you're going highway, um, what do they call it in Israel? Have you all been to... 
it, it was in Hebrew. They didn't translate it, right? Okay. All right. Think about 93.6 miles, though, doing that on foot. Think about doing that, doing that on foot with your betrothed wife who is great with child. That was quite a journey. Um, and it took a number of days. Joseph went to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Generation after generation, until the promised son of David, the Messiah, was born, who would rule a forever kingdom. God had been preparing this literally for centuries. Jesus the Messiah was born in the fullness of time, as Paul puts it in Galatians. Roman roads and laws and other infrastructure conducive to spreading the good news to everyone and protecting the expansion of Christianity throughout the empire, they were all in place. Joseph and Mary traveled south to Bethlehem, but Luke says they traveled up to Bethlehem because it's of higher elevation. Mary is called his betrothed. She traveled with him because she was with child and near the time of delivery. She's called his betrothed, even though Joseph had already taken her as his wife in obedience to the angel's command, but he, he kept the distance. He didn't go in unto her until after the Holy Son of God was born. God had revealed to Joseph that Mary's child was miraculously conceived, just as the prophet Isaiah had predicted. The Lord himself will give you a sign, a miracle with a message. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall be called his name Emmanuel with us, God. So the historic timing of his birth is all about God ruling human history so that his redemption plan comes to pass in the person of Jesus Christ just as he foretold. Well, some things to think about. The God of our redemption rules the course of history as the historic timing of Jesus' birth illustrates. So in what ways do you need to be trusting God during your own part of human history. Now, you're not Jesus, but particularly if you're trusting in Jesus, you're part of the redemption story. God isn't surprised that you're here, and God isn't surprised that you're trusting in Jesus, and God has had a plan for you from centuries before creation in eternity past, and God has a plan for you in eternity future. Mary and Joseph's doing what God commanded them didn't make for an easy road. Most women about to deliver babies don't go for a 93.6-mile walk in the countryside. What hard things are you willing to endure to follow God's directives to you? Second, we learned the humble circumstances of his birth. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, swaddling cloths, you don't you know, see that advertised, uh, not even at Walmart usually. Um, but wrapping a newborn in, in a baby in strips of cloth 
was customary in those days. That was not unusual. And in fact, often, even today, you'll see babies that are still infants and they're used to the security of, of being with their mom. You'll see them wrapped up tightly so that they feel secure. Well, that was customary. But using a manger for a cradle was not customary any more than it is today. The inn can refer to anything from a private home with a guest room to an outdoor enclosure for travelers to spend the night. But with all the travelers that were there because of the census, there was not a place for Mary and Joseph. The circumstances into which Jesus was born were far from ideal. He is the promised eternal king, God in human flesh. But he comes as a helpless infant. His parents are not wealthy, but, but had he been born in Nazareth, at least he would have been born in a home. But they're on the road. They're sheltered with animals. Imagine how difficult it was to give birth in that kind of environment. But such humble and difficult circumstances well suited the true nature of the incarnation. It actually gives us insight into what's going on here. We, we often rejoice at the birth of a child, and we, we think of it as a joyful event, and yet this one is surrounded with difficulty. If Jesus had been born in a palace, it still would have been a great condescension from the heavenly city, the capital of the universe. So even in his birth, Jesus associates with the lowly, and, and God makes that point in his birth. His power and his influence will not come because he's got connections with money and with worldly power. He will make his mark because of who he is, the great I am. And since his first guests are to be shepherds, what better place for shepherds to feel welcomed than in a stable. They don't have expensive gifts to give. They've just come to see what the angel had told them had taken place. God often does his greatest works in the course of the most mundane moments of our lives, the most stressful, the most painful. His power shows itself strong in our weakness. He teaches us this. He taught the apostles this. Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh and, and asking to be relieved from it. And Jesus answers him and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, you, you understand what power is when you see it in the context of weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the birth of Christ conveys this, this theme that runs through the gospel message, that, that following Jesus means denying yourself and taking up a cross and following him. He's not calling us just to an easy life. He, he is... He himself has walked what was not an easy road. So what does God's use of such humble circumstances teach you about how he often works? And what encouragement do you find in Christ's willingness 
to be so humbled to rescue you. I mean, Jesus is going through all of this for a reason. It's to rescue us. It's to humble himself to make us his. Well, we see the angelic announcement of his birth. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So when human beings suddenly encounter an angel, it is normal for them to be terrified. You search the Scriptures, or if you've ever had an encounter with the Spirit being yourself, you know that this is not something that anything that's not normal doesn't feel, doesn't feel safe. And, and there's a sense in which angels are not safe. You remember the power of angelic spirit beings. An angel of death wiped out all the firstborn of Egypt, finally breaking Pharaoh's iron grip on keeping the Israelites as slaves. It was just one angel that destroyed 185,000 soldiers in one night, breaking Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem. The cherubim and seraphim speaking of, speak of burning ones, shining with blazing light. And here the angel appears, and all around them is the Shekinah glory, the blinding light, the shining splendor of God in the middle of the night. You and I would have been terrified too. But the angel's words are words of the greatest comfort imaginable not just for the immediate alarm of encountering an overwhelmingly powerful spirit being, but the comfort for every soul longing to be free from the ages-long curse of sin and death and condemnation. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, was Christ the Lord. Literally, the angel says, I evangelize to you a great joy. When we talk about evangelizing, we're talking about bringing good news. It's good newsing to others. It's the gospel. The angel is announcing the gospel. And this gospel, the true gospel, centers on a person. It centers on a Savior a rescuer, a deliverer, a healer. It centers on the Christ, the Messiah, the promised anointed one. It centers on the Lord, God himself. The term that he uses was used to translate both the Old Testament term Yahweh, the I am that I am, he is, and Adonai, my master. The prophets had long before identified Messiah is also God in the flesh. Remember that Isaiah calls the promised virgin-born child Emmanuel, with us God. And later, this child upon whose shoulders the government would rest and whose kingdom would never end is called the mighty God in Isaiah 9. And notice the words the angel uses, unto you is born this child. It reminds us of Isaiah's wording, unto us a child is born. 
Here it's even more poignant. Unto you means heaven's gift is for shepherds, not just kings or scholars or the religious elite. It is for those who know they need a Savior. It's good news for all the people. It's good news for all the families of the earth, just as God promised Abraham. And Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 11 in his name, the Gentiles, the ethnicities would trust. When Christ commissioned his disciples to proclaim the gospel, they were to make disciples of all ethnicities. They were to preach the gospel to all the world, to every living created being. The book of Acts records how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is good news for all people everywhere because every one of us, no matter our country or our language, our time, every one of us needs rescue from sin and sorrow, from death, from judgment. Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs cleansing. Everyone needs a new heart. Everyone needs a new destiny. All of it is a gift to us only through this one child. Unto you is born this day. And this will be a sign for you. The angel goes on. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's a sign a sign is a miracle with a message. It doesn't seem all that miraculous to see a baby wrapped in strips of cloth. But it's something out of the ordinary to see a baby lying in a manger. It marks this one as from God, as having spiritual significance. This baby, this promised newborn Messiah, the Savior King whose coming had been foretold for centuries in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, would be sheltered in the most humble of circumstances, lying in a manger. The, the very thing that would have caused many to overlook him was the sign that he's actually the one that the angel announced. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So the angel who spoke to them, he's not alone. It's not just, you know, Gabriel talked to Mary alone. Uh, God talked to Joseph in a dream. This is all very private. Th this angel speaking is not alone. The host of heaven is there. Suddenly a vast army of angels appears. They're raising their voices and praise to God. Because the Lord, as the song says, is the God of angel armies. He's the Lord of hosts. And through the centuries, these hosts of the Lord have provided protection for God's people. When Elisha and his servant were surrounded by enemy troops from the king of Syria, he told his servant not to be afraid, for those that were with them were more than the troops that had come against them. And we're told in 2 Kings 6, then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's this kind of angelic host. Revelation talks of myriads of myriads of angels at the Lord's command in the heavenly city. Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. They go back and forth between the heavenly city and the earth, carrying out the will of God for his people. And they will accompany 
the conquering Lord Jesus when he comes to judge the earth. But here they come, not for war, but for peace. They come to publicly praise the shining splendor of God and to tell the shepherds that the promised peace has finally come through the newborn prince of peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Literally, on earth, peace among men of good pleasure. Speaking of God's good pleasure. God the Father speaks of Jesus as his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. God is pleased, according to Hebrews eleven six, with those who put their faith in Christ the Son. In fact, it's impossible to please God apart from that. For no human being but Jesus ever lived perfectly to God's pleasure. So it's through faith in Christ as the anointed Savior King that God accepts us into his peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the one who makes peace between us and God. He reconciles us to God, and that's what the angels were announcing that night. The one, the only one, through whom human beings, sinful as they are, can be reconciled to God, had been born. And in him alone can we please God and be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. The angelic praise highlights that that God is the one who makes the peace. He makes the shalom possible for us. He, He makes the world right again. He makes us right again. He's the one who has taken the necessary action to bring us back into His good pleasure. It was costly to do so. God the Son humbled to a a human infant growing up as a human in order to reveal God to us, to live perfectly, and then to die brutally in our place, only to rise three days later. It's the only way. Jesus, born of a virgin, has opened the door. Such an epic rescue calls for praise to God in the highest places of the heavens because no one but God could ever have accomplished it for us, for sinners like us, sinners by birth and by choice, rebels against God, reconciled to the Prince of Peace. So how is it helpful for you to know that God uses mighty angels to make his gospel known to people often overlooked and looked down on. He's still doing things like this. He's still doing it. The angel's announcement ties Christ's birth to centuries of messianic prophecies. What does that teach you about all the promises of God? Think about the promises you've not yet enjoyed. Have you ever wondered whether God's going to make good on them? Well, they had waited for centuries for the Messiah to come. And he came exactly as God had promised. And it really leaves us with the question of whether you have received the gift of God's peace through his Son in whom he is well pleased. There's not one of us here who could stand next to Jesus and say, hey, I'm as good as he is. 
Not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's only in him. It's only our connection with him that gets us in. It's like Jesus says, hey, he's with me. You can let him in. This is what Christ has done. And then we finally see in verses 15 to 20 the human testimony to his birth. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, in other words, they saw the sign that the angel had talked about. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Okay, think about it. You go into a stable and you see a baby. Okay, I saw a baby in a stable. That's weird. But what made it significant was what the angel had told them before they went. It was a fulfillment of what the angel had told them, and, and that made it extraordinary. That's the only way they would know that this is the Christ child, from what the angel had told them. This is the way we know who Jesus is. It's because of what God has revealed. It's because of what God has revealed, and we believe it. And all who heard it wondered. They were amazed at what the shepherds told them, and, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. What's clear from the shepherds' words is that they were familiar with the messianic prophecies. When the angel says, the Christ, they knew what he's talking about. When he talk, they talk about Savior and Lord, they knew what he's talking about. They were not ignorant, as many supposed. Even more important, they responded in active faith to the angelic announcement of Messiah's birth. And, and this is such a contrast with the chief priests and scribes when the wise men came seeking the newborn king. These guardians of worship and of the scriptures could quote Bible verses. They had no interest in the hero of the Bible. They had no interest in bowing the knee to King Messiah. Herod the king wanted to find the child, but not to worship him as he claimed, but to kill him. God knows whom to invite to see the newborn Messiah. These shepherds went with haste and found him just as the angel had reported to them. And having seen him, they did not keep his identity a secret they shared the good news, leaving people amazed. If they had had a megaphone, they would have used it. But everywhere they went, and they're nomadic people, everywhere they went, they told people about Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. She's very likely Luke's human source for the events of that night. Think about it. None of the disciples were there. There weren't any disciples. So, so how would we know about these things through the Holy Spirit, but also through the human witness of Mary? The beginning of Luke's gospel declares that he researched the things that have been taught about Jesus, and he likely had opportunity to interview Mary while Paul was in prison two years in Caesarea awaiting trial. Well, the shepherds went back to their sheep, doing what was their job to do, just as they had been doing when the angel suddenly appeared with such amazing news. But they not only told other people about it, they gave praise to God. They gave glory to Him for all they had heard and seen. The angelic word 
proved absolutely true. And it still does. It's worth believing. It's worth acting on. It's worth sharing with others. And it's worth praising God for. Think how many things you're told are absolutely so. Well, they might not use those words, but they say, you know, trust me, I'm telling you what's so. Think how many times those turn out to be lies or at least mistakes. And yet, this message from heaven, this good news from heaven is absolutely reliable. You can take it to the bank. You can live your entire life on the basis of it. You can bank your eternity on it. You can be sure that that when your day comes and you breathe your last, that you'll actually be welcomed into heaven on the basis of the very words of God who will get you there through Jesus. So for you and for us, how long have you known about Jesus Christ, the promised Savior? And with whom have you shared the good news? Who are some individuals that God has strategically placed you to reach with the good news of salvation through Christ? And when do you plan to share the gospel with them? Ever thought about how God orchestrated, you know, all this history and God uses all these humble circumstances and God uses angels, but God uses human testimony to put forth the gospel. God has you placed historically where God wants you. The people you know are divine appointments. The the people with whom you have influence It's not just because of you that you have influence. It's because of God, the Lord of history. And you have a purpose every bit as large as that of the shepherds of making him known and giving him praise. As we consider this beautiful passage, we see the historic timing of Messiah's birth. We see the humble circumstances of it. We see the angelic announcement. And we see the human testimony to it. May God help us as we close out a year and begin the next to be like the shepherds who tell everyone the amazing things that we've seen and heard and give God the glory. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your son. I thank you, God, that you made crystal clear that this baby is like no other You made it clear centuries before that the Messiah would be born as a child. Centuries before that he would be not just man, but God. You made it absolutely clear that all people everywhere will be welcomed into his kingdom. You made it absolutely clear that those in him would be saved from the wrath to come. We become the saints those who belong to God and would be part of an everlasting kingdom. And God, you made it clear, not only in prophecy, you made it clear in eyewitness testimony. You you made it so obvious that this is the Christ. And God, here we are 2,000 years later, still reading the record. And Lord, since this time, how many millions 
have trusted in you. How many millions have entered into the new covenant and been changed from the inside out. And we've seen evidence. We've seen miracles. We've seen signs of you taking ordinary people and making them extraordinary saints. You've let us know them. So God, I pray that we will take up the mantle of the shepherds, that we will that we will be obedient to your great commission to make known to all the world the good news of the Lord Jesus, the Savior King. Lord, help us start with the people next to us. Help us start with those that we already know, and then, Lord, may it expand from there. And we pray, God, that you would cause the amazement and the wonder, and you would bring them to faith to make them part of the Messiah's kingdom. For it's in Christ's name we pray.